More people than ever are becoming caregivers for elderly parents or other loved ones, but balancing life, work, and caregiving can be a huge difficulty. A new WDET series called Because We Care will explore the lives and issues affecting caregivers in Metro Detroit over the next few months. And this time I spoke with Jennifer Leppard, the Alzheimer's Association Michigan Chapter President and CEO, about how the organization supports and advocates for patients with Alzheimer's and dementia and their families. The Alzheimer's Association is a nationwide organization. Its headquarters are in Chicago. There are about 75 different chapters across the country. Uh, the state of Michigan is one chapter. And uh, we really focus on um, three main things. Um, care and support, providing assistance to people living with this disease and their caregivers. Um, advocacy, really advancing the cause of Alzheimer's, uh, educating our state legislatures as well as people at the national level. And that really ties into uh, raising concern and awareness. And that we do that through our big fundraising events, our walks to Alzheimer's, um, which we are in the middle of walk season. So um, hope I can share a little bit more about that later. And, um, and really pushing for increased funding for research and really ending the disease. Do you have any uh, statistics on how many people are living with Alzheimer's in Michigan? Yes, uh, we have 190,000 people in Michigan living with Alzheimer's or a form of dementia. Um, you know, uh, some people don't um, are confused about the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's. And so um, just real briefly, uh, dementia we use as kind of the umbrella term. And Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia. About 60 to 80% of dementias are Alzheimer's disease, but there are other forms. And uh, in addition to the 190,000 people living with Alzheimer's who are obviously greatly impacted having the disease, uh, we estimate that there's about a half a million individuals who are providing care and support to those individuals. And for anyone who has been through that experience, uh, the impact to those individuals and those family members is tremendous. Yeah, let's talk about the first stages of when a loved one is diagnosed with Alzheimer's or dementia. For the families, what are, what are the questions they should be asking and what are the first steps they should be doing? You know, it's interesting you bring that up. Um, I'm actually going through an experience right now in my own family um, where we are uh, exploring a diagnosis for a family member. And um, I think one of the um, one thing that I would always like to tell people, and if there's some way to implant this, when, when people are newly diagnosed, is to really have them understand kind of the road ahead. And that's really one of the big things that we try to do with the association through our care and support services. Because um, many times somebody is diagnosed in very early stages, and so they've got some issues that are causing concern. And certainly the one that people are most common with is memory. Um, and memory is certainly uh, one of the first things that some people notice. But in some forms of dementia, and even, even in Alzheimer's, memory is not the first issue. Um, sometimes the more obvious issue is executive functioning. And that's really your ability to make good decisions and manage things like bills. That's one of the first things sometimes people will notice that, you know, my husband, my mother, um, all of a sudden her bills are late, she's not getting things paid, uh, things are being paid doubly. And that's one of the first times, uh, first things that sometimes people notice. Also in some other forms of dementia, especially frontal temporal, the first signs of dementia will really be more behavior oriented. Um, when the front part of your brain is impacted as it is in frontal temporal dementia, 
you will see behavior changes, uh, loss of inhibition, acting out inappropriately, and sometimes those are the first symptoms. So one of the things that we try to do with the association is uh, offer trainings to um, people individually. We also uh, love to work with companies and, and do education as a part of their offering to their employees about really what signs people can be looking for and when you should go and get an assessment and really what the difference is between normal aging as is you know most alzheimer's and dementias are in people over the age of 65 um and when it's not normal aging what are some of the first questions that that a a family member should be asking uh or the individual if they're still aware enough to know what's going on around them about this diagnosis so I think when you're talking to a loved one, um, you know, many times, even though uh, certainly there are many, many stages until people are, are really not aware of their surroundings. But I think a lot of times what you'll see is that um, sometimes people themselves, they aren't seeing it. And so when you try to say, you know, mom, I'm a little worried about you paying your bills and they're like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. And so I think that's when we can be some of, of some assistance to you in terms of advice and also why sometimes it's really good to focus on why don't we get an assessment? Why don't we go to your primary care doctor and, and maybe a referral to a neurologist so that we can have somebody on the outside look in. One thing that is a very easy kind of first assessment is a test that's become kind of popular in the news now because it's something that our, our current president has, has mentioned that he's taken. But it's really a mini assessment to really determine if you've got some early signs. And um, some of the things on that assessment are uh, drawing a clock, being able to repeat a series of words back. And those are all things that might seem minor, but really do indicate some changes in cognitive thinking. And sometimes people that think they're doing a great job um, really aren't when they take those tests. And sometimes what, what that can help do is really have everyone have something to focus on other than just, mom, I kind of have a feeling you're not doing a great job. And then she says, oh, I'm fine. You know, kind of how do you move on from that? So sometimes having an assessment um, and having a third party can really help focus those conversations. Now, there are people who do themselves identify and say, you know, I'm having trouble. I'm at work. I'm in a very complex job and I'm not able to do the things that I used to do. And many people do see that in themselves and then seek out an opinion. Well, let's take it to the uh, the advocacy level of this. What are some of the things that the Alzheimer's Association does uh, as far as legislative uh, advocacy or um, medical advocacy to support these patients? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked because um, it's something that a lot of people don't know that we do. We have a huge cadre of people across the state of Michigan that are involved in our advocacy work, um, and we are so appreciative of everything they do. Many of them have lived through this disease, and really their personal stories are what make a difference. So we advocate on the state level. Um, we have... Um, I, I'm going to say I've been in almost every office in Lansing, um, and we have full-time staff that are based in Lansing that talk to our elected officials to keep them educated about what's going on with the disease and to help them, um, you know, really identify ways that the state of Michigan can be supportive and, and really advocate for action here. Certainly, we've been involved in, in some communication and advocacy since COVID started. Um, you know, one of the hardest hit groups, as I think everybody knows, is, is elderly people, and especially people living in assisted living facilities. And a very high percentage of people in assisted living facilities do have some form of dementia or Alzheimer's. So we've really been advocating on how um, those institutions can be provided with the most uh, help 
so that they can operate and get back to a little bit of normal in terms of being able to have visitors and family and things like that. So we do a lot on the state level. Every year we have a state advocacy day in Lansing. Unfortunately this year um, we could not do that because of uh, COVID. But um, we were very successful in continuing to have conversations with our elected officials virtually. And, you know, since Michigan is a term limited state, we constantly have new people that need to be brought up to speed and educated. On the national level, we have an office in Washington, D.C. that really spearheads tremendous work in, um, in advocacy. We have an annual meeting every year in the spring uh, called Forum. We have over a thousand people from around the country that come. Again, many people that have lived with this disease themselves or been caregivers and really continue to make sure that our federal officials continue to keep their foot on the pedal in terms of increasing research to re uh, funding to research. And we have been very successful. We are so proud. Um, we are up over $2 billion a year. When I started with the association, we were about half a mil, you know, half a billion. And so we have quite, you know, almost quadrupled that in terms of investment in research funding with the NIA. And that makes all the difference in the world. If, if you're not doing research on every front, you can't uh, hopefully find a solution. And so I really, not, not only the people that go with us to Washington, but we have hundreds of people across the state of Michigan that make sure that part of their every day is, uh, is really reaching out to our federal elected officials to make sure that this is on their radar screen. And we are so excited to have new people join us every day. So sometimes um, people, that's the best fit for them. And we're happy to talk to them about how they can become involved in advocacy work. Well, you mentioned research and development there. Take me into what is some of the, the progress in research into treatments like right now? Is there progress? Oh, there's progress every day. Um, one thing, anybody who's really interested in research, um, I would really advise them to go to our website, www.alz.org. And you can reach the Michigan um, page at slash GMC for Greater Michigan Chapter. Um, we just had a presentation on uh, Tuesday, actually, with a local researcher who works in Ann Arbor at U of M, who updated everyone on what was going on in the research world. And we do those periodically through the years. So um, I really, anybody who's interested, please go and check out that website, and we will make sure that you are contacted when we have upcoming, in fact, we have one coming up next week. In this virtual world, it's very, um, it's very convenient, you know, if you try to look for the silver linings of COVID, but we have a presentation Tuesday the 29th. Um, Dr. Scott Counts, who's with Michigan State University in Grand Rapids, is going to be updating everybody. And part of his talk is going to focus on the Alzheimer's Association International Conference. We, have, we sponsor the largest conference in the world every year about Alzheimer's research. Uh, we usually have over 6,000 people in attendance. And um, we hold events all over the world. Uh, this year was supposed to be in Amsterdam. So because we couldn't do that, the silver lining there was instead of 6,000 participants, we had 33,000 people that participated in some aspect of the conference virtually. Um, it is an amazing, I've had the privilege of being able to go, and it is just amazing collection of, of researchers who every year update what's happening. <clears throat> some of the key things that our researchers are looking at right now is uh, diagnostics, uh, better ways. Right now, there is no clinical test to determine definitively that you have Alzheimer's. It's basically a clinical assessment. Um, that's commonly used. And so one of the things that is being developed um, and really looked at is blood test, saliva test, other ways that we can definitively make a diagnosis. Uh, there's also lots of research going on right now about the link between Alzheimer's disease and basically your general health and really identifying those risk factors. And part of the reason there's such a focus on that is that 
that is something people can control. So your weight, uh, the amount of exercise you get, the amount of sleep that you get. And there's a big project going on in the, in, uh, the U.S. right now, sponsored by the Alzheimer's Association, the Pointer study, um, who's really looking at those factors in terms of how they are related. Um, so there is a tremendous amount of progress going on all the time. The great thing about the conference and for people who think about research, it's not just uh, test tube bench science. There's so much research that's going on regarding psychosocial, um, how to not only identify Alzheimer's, but what's the best way to continue to interact with people and provide them support. So there's research of every kind. And the last little thing I'll say about research is um, one of the biggest challenges for all research is having enough people participate in research studies. In order for a study to be valid, uh, we need a cross-section of people and we need enough. And so one of the easy ways that you can help with that is you can also go to our website, alz.org GMC, and we can uh, look for trial match. And it actually is a service in which you can put in some details about yourself. And if there's a study that would be a good fit for you based on your demographics, we will let you know. And it's something that you may choose to participate in. It ranges all the way from clinical trials to people playing video games once a month. I have a staff person who's in a study and that's the way she's participating. And people have a misconception that they're only looking for people with Alzheimer's. This is everybody. This is people with healthy brains, people that might have mild cognitive impairment, a very early stage. Um, all the way to more advanced stages. Um, because one of the key things that we are looking at at research is right now estimated that changes in your brain that lead to Alzheimer's disease could be happening 15 to 20 years prior to any symptoms. So clearly one of the big things researchers are looking at is how do we identify those changes in a way that we can intervene and what interventions might work so that we can at least, if not stop progression to Alzheimer's, slow that progression, which would make a huge difference in uh, the lives of people living with the disease. Because the series is about caregiving on a lot of different levels, for the caregivers of those who have loved ones who have been diagnosed with dementia and Alzheimer's, and for their families, what are some of the particular struggles that they face and, and what resources do you have to help them? And those struggles are immense. And, and I think to go back to something we talked to a little bit earlier, you know, a lot of times when people are first diagnosed, they are in um, uh, pretty good shape in terms of their cognition still. And one of the things that becomes harder and harder is that people make decisions early on um, in terms of what they think they're going to be able to do to care for their loved one based on that situation. The average trajectory for Alzheimer's disease is eight to 10 years. So when you, if you're diagnosed early and, and you go through that progress of eight to 10 years, there's gonna be pretty substantial changes. And I think one of the things that we try really hard to do is to work with individuals to look ahead and make sure that they have things in place that they want to have in place. Um, a friend who had been a client of the association, and one of the things, and I've, I've shared this with so many people because I thought it was such a great idea, um, his mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. She was elderly and she made it very clear that she was hoping to never go into an assisted living facility. And that was certainly his intent, but he also realized that that might not be something that he could um, honor 
for the rest of her life, depending on what was going on with him and, and how the disease progressed. So what he decided to do when, when she was still very cognitively present is to ask her to go with him to visit some assisted living facilities so that she could identify if she had to go to one eventually, um, which one would be one that she would like. And it really provided a peace of mind for both the caregiver and for the mother, knowing that his commitment was to keep her home. But then he also had the, um, really the, the comfort of knowing that if eventually he did need to place her, that this was a site that she had also picked out and that she was comfortable with. And I think that that's sometimes one of the challenges is that we wait too long to have conversations with people that are living with dementia when beyond the point that they're able to really engage in those conversations. I think the other thing, um, you know, depending on the age, and we've had people as young as in their 30s with Alzheimer's disease, which is, which is a very different disease and, and not common, but certainly it provides different challenges if you're on the younger side, if you're still working, um, if you've got children at home. And I think that um, caregivers, one of the things that um, we try to help a lot with is them taking care of themselves. And you hear a lot about self-care and in this current environment, you hear a lot about that as well. But we do provide support groups for caregivers. We have support groups for people living with dementia. Uh, we provide joint activities in the community, uh, early stage activities with some of our partner organizations. We have great partnerships with Henry Ford, with the DIA, with the DSO. And that's really supporting both the person living with dementia and the caregiver. Because sometimes what happens with the caregiver is it becomes a very isolating experience. Um, they might not feel comfortable taking their loved one out uh, because maybe they think their loved one will be embarrassed. Or it's difficult sometimes when you're in a situation and your loved one is maybe repeating questions and things that people don't understand what's happening. So we work to provide those activities that are really a respite for the caregiver as well and really encourage them to talk and develop friendships. We have caregiver groups and support groups that the caregivers have come together when they were dealing with a loved one with the disease who have stayed in contact well after their loved one has left um, because it's been such a strong support for them. Alzheimer's Association Michigan Chapter President and CEO. Because We Care is supported by Tight Knit, an initiative of the Ralph C. Wilson Foundation. You can find more stories about caregiving for loved ones at tightknit.org. And this is Culture Shift here on 1019 WDET. Next on the show, we'll continue to celebrate Ed Love's 60 years on Detroit Radio. Ahead, Rob Reinhart will share a tribute and a song for Ed. And just next, we'll do the roundup. You are listening to WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Right now in the city, mostly cloudy skies. 65 here, 18 Celsius in Windsor.